1: Hello and welcome back to New Books in Middle East Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Joshua Donovan, and today I'm delighted to welcome Osama Maktisi to the show. Dr. Maktisi is a professor of history and the Arab American Educational Foundation Chair of Arab Studies at Rice University. This year, he is a visiting professor at the University of California, Berkeley. Professor Mekdisi is the author of a number of groundbreaking studies on sectarianism, religion, and politics in the modern Middle East, including the culture of sectarianism, artillery of heaven, and faith misplaced. But today, we will be discussing his latest book, Age of Coexistence, The Ecumenical Frame and the Making of the Modern Arab World, which was published uh, this year, 2019, by the University of California Press. Thank you so much for sitting down with us today, Professor Mekdisi.
2: Thank you so much for having me, Joshua. It's a pleasure to be here
1: so uh i I want to start just by having you introduce yourself briefly to the audience and and specifically uh how does how did you come to work on uh, age of coexistence? How does it sort of tie into or depart from your previous work um well,
2: you know. So, I, I, as you mentioned in the introduction, I spent a lot of time, and I've spent a lot of time working on the question of sectarianism, um, having grown up in Lebanon during the Civil War, um, having you know, spent uh, over a decade uh, working on this topic. I realized um, at some point, when I was asked uh, at one point earlier by uh, a press to sort of expand the culture of sectarianism to sort of go beyond Mount Lebanon or Lebanon and, and expand it to the rest of the Middle East, especially in the wake of the U S invasion of Iraq and the, the outbreak of sectarian violence there. And so I thought about that. Um, and I, I started writing a book in part because of these informal you know discussions with editors, but, but in part also because it was something that I had been interested in. And then I realized, um, Midway through writing the first uh, version of a manuscript, uh, I realized that I was deeply unsatisfied with with focusing again on sectarianism having felt that I had already said what I have to say about the topic and there's you know there are tons of other people who are writing interesting things about sectarianism and um, yeah. what I felt was much more urgent was was this other tradition that uh, that I knew, intimately growing up um, and you know and, and having lived in 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 the Middle East uh, this tradition that we call coexistence and I felt that this tradition this anti-sectarian tradition this sort of tradition that that brought people of different faiths together um, in fascinating ways um, was was something that was not just not just that we needed to remember but also, that needed a history, a proper modern history that's not a romanticized history of the past as simple coexistence or some kind of idealized coexistence, but actually a critical history of coexistence. Something that was actually, um, that, that something that I felt that both lay, lay people and scholars of the Middle East uh, desperately needed to be related with. And, and, and I'm including myself in that as well. So it began as a history of sectarianism. It ended up being really, in a sense, a history of anti-sectarianism. And, and I think that's a, a field of inquiry that, um, that um, I think can be and should be uh, an extraordinary opportunity for scholars of the Middle East to delve into it. Because it's really part and parcel of this extraordinary um, region and its history.
1: Well, so, and, and you call this... Uh, anti-sectarianism, uh, the ecumenical frame in this book. And I'm wondering how, how you came to that title, um, especially given that when people use the, the term ecumenicalism or ecumenism, it usually refers to uh, a, a Christian movement.
2: Correct, uh, that, that is the conventional way, especially in the Protestant church and in the way uh, Christian, uh, the way it's used in, in the Protestant tradition, the, the ecumenical movement, and ecumenism and so on. Of course it has, as we know, much older and much deeper roots um, You know, in terms of the word itself, in terms of its original meaning. Um, but also I'll point out that, of course, it's used among scholars of the Middle East to describe Islamic, the Islamic tradition. I mean, so Islamic ecumenism is a term that has been around for a while. And the reason why I was attracted, there's two reasons why I, I ended up settling on, on the idea or the notion of the ecumenical frame one is because in in the very nature of, of of the word ecumenism is this idea uh especially uh this idea of, of of something that that brings people together that allows them to transcend their differences to recognize on the one hand and at the same time to transcend their differences so it's not about the denial of difference but at the same time it is about the emphasis on the transcendent commonality and the aspiration uh to uh, achieve that commonality and so that's that's at one level why i found the term so so powerful and so compelling so it's not it's not uh, it, so and that that's the first reason the second reason i think is more to push back from what i i felt and i felt for a while has been a dead end in the in the scholarship of the field in the modern middle east both uh, i feel in anthropology of the middle east but also in some of the historical scholarship which is to say this this endless debate whether people are secular or religious um, uh, and as if there's always a choice to be made. Sometimes, of course, there is a choice to be made, but what I found much more interesting is how often people in the region, especially in the mashriq, um, have come together, uh, whether, whether they come together in, in, in ecumenical terms, whether it's in secular, more secular versions of that ecumenism, whether it's in more pietistic versions of that ecumenism, but there is this very powerful anti-sectarian mobilization that gets expressed at different registers, uh, but that's not, that does not posit religion versus secular, but is actually both at the same time at, in different ways. So I wanted to capture that, that reality as well, this idea that there's an extraordinarily living, powerful, anti-sectarian tradition that is incredibly ecumenical and that includes both Muslims and non-Muslims. Christians and non-Christians, Jews and non-Jews in this history. And so uh, that's what I was trying to to signal. And I know it's, you know, I still struggle with the term, honestly. Um, and, and I know a lot of people, um, I have theologian friends uh, who and colleagues who have, you know, who initially told me that I should use the term interfaith. But my point is, this is not about only religious people, and it's not simply a religious debate. This is a debate, a tradition, an, an ecumenical, anti-sectarian tradition that encompasses all sorts of people in the mashrik. And it's a tradition that we need to be far more aware of.
1: Mm, well, I'm not a theologian, but for what it's worth, uh, I liked your term just because of how, of how capacious this frame really is and how much uh, it allows for a discussion that, as you said, sort of transcends binaries that I think are problematic between religious and, and secular. Um, one of the historiographical moves that you make uh, is to emphasize uh, the Ottoman context in shaping this, this ecumenical frame. Um, and I was struck by this um, for, for a couple of reasons. I mean, um, on the one hand, you, you push back a, a bit or just gently against narratives of of ottoman tolerance um, that have sort of crept up over the years um, and argue that uh just as sectarianism has a history so too does uh does the sort of ecumenical frame or the anti-sectarianism so what is at stake in telling or, or retelling 19th century ottoman history and and locating the ecumenical frame uh here
2: well because i mean one of the one of the main thrusts of the book is to basically push back against what i see as pervasive denial uh, as i said at the first at the very most at the most basic level the the denial of this rich extraordinarily rich and humane anti sectarian traditionalist ecumenical tradition the ecumenical frame as i call it in the region and to understand that we have to understand where it began and as far it's so you could think of of ecumenism or or the ecumenical frame at one level, you know the, the simple ways to say, "Well, it, this this goes back a long way in the history of the Middle East." But my point was to emphasize how my understanding of modern coexistence is tied profoundly to the idea of equality and citizenship. And and these terms, for all their flaws and their all their criticisms, and there's been a huge amount, as you know, scholarship that's criticized liberal understandings of citizenship uh, and so on, but. In the case of, of the Ottoman Empire, and as in the case of virtually every other polity of the 19th century, where such questions of equality arose, um, it, it led to profound uh, profound questions. How to organize diversity on an equal basis? What does that mean? How do you take uh, hitherto discriminated against communities and transform them into equal citizens? What are the problems? How does this manifest itself? How did it manifest itself in different ways? And so it, for me, the obvious starting point for this history would have been the 19th century Ottoman Empire when the very question of citizenship and equality first arise in, in substantial and meaningful ways. And so that's why I began in, in the Ottoman period. And then, of course, my point is that, that this history doesn't just end with the end of the Ottoman Empire. It continues after the Ottoman Empire all the way. Honestly, I think it's, you still see it when you travel in the mashrukh. You can still feel it and, and live it in a sense despite the sensationalized representations of the middle east as a an endless place of sectarianism and so on and so forth so that's 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 an answer as to why the ottomans but as you know you know having read the book i hope or at least i hope i made this clear that that my emphasis is not simply on ottoman bureaucrats or ottoman statesmen but it's also uh, on of course the uh, subjects and then later citizens both in the ottoman period and in the post ottoman period as, as they grappled with this question of how, how exactly and how precisely to, to manage this, this extraordinarily fraught transition from an empire of subjects to one of citizens, from overt ideological discrimination against uh, uh, non-Muslims and non-Ottomans to this sort of uh, late 19th century empire. And what's fascinating is to track how the empire, you know, despite its extraordinary diminishment in the 19th century as a Political sovereign. What's fascinating is how uh, it's. I was struck by how this empire both allowed for this extraordinary um, um, anti-sectarian, ecumenical frame to develop on the one hand, and on the other hand, in different parts of the empire, in particular, and I emphasise the Balkans, um, there was a very different, it seems to me, trajectory. Of course, I'm generalising here a little bit, but a different trajectory in the sense that. There you you see a, a, a much more statist, nationalist um, understanding that develops and takes place and, and really shapes the region, the Balkans, and then, of course, Anatolia. So I, I think the Ottoman Empire is crucial.
1: So um, stepping outside of the, the bureaucrats, then, some of the people uh, in the Mashraq who were developing this or seem to be part of this ecumenical frame uh, were not right. Or, or the intellects and, and, writers who were contributing to, to the not. Um, and I was also sort of struck, um, by your characterization of, of these Nohdawi's and and I don't disagree um, with with how you uh, discuss them, but you you point out things that aren't often emphasized, right? So you point out, for example, um, that many of these Nohdawi thinkers were sort of conservative, elitist. There's a, a paternalism uh, to to their work. Um, so I, I'm curious, what what were some of the limits then of of the Nohdawi, and, and what does this tell us about the ecumenical frame itself. If one of the major uh, sources of, of ecumenism, uh, as you uh, describe it, comes from this Nahda movement.
2: Well, I mean, there, there's two. There's two points to be said uh, to that. Um, the first, of course, that there is no, as I say in the book, there is no, and I think as as most scholars would agree, I, I hope there is. There was no single overarching Nahda project that was sort of defined as such, you know, that was centralized in, in, a, in, a, in a major way. So I think that's important to understand that the Nahda itself is a term that we use. Um, although, of course, it was coined in the in the late 19th century, but the, the way people think of the Nahda, is they often think of it as a totalizing project. So we produce anthologies of the Nahda. There's a brand new anthology, a great anthology, in fact, that just came out um, on a bilingual anthology of the Nahda, which sort of gives it a sort of coherence that it doesn't necessarily have uh, as a as a single monolithic political project. Not that they're suggesting that. But so I wanted to push back against this idea just because I realized people, especially, again, considering where we are in the Arab world today and how much disillusionment there is in the Arab world. So what you often get are people who say, the Nahda failed, or the Nahda was false promise, or the Nahda was X, or the Nahda was Y. But it's always, or not always, but often um, extraordinarily Defeatist and and almost to the point I would say of self-loathing, in that you find you know a, a sense of despair really in the Arab world, given how how wretched the state of affairs is uh, currently in the Arab world. And my point was to push back against that, not again by romanticizing, but by pointing out that in fact the Nahda itself, you know, this moment that we call the Nahda belonged, of course, to an Ottoman moment that that itself was. Was uh, affected, influenced, shaped by a number of external inputs, and so you had the space that developed in the context of the Tanzimat, in the context of the declaration of of non discrimination as an imperial policy, and then eventually citizenship, equal citizenship, and in the context of a common Arabic language, in the context of the rise of the press, and these are things that scholars of the region, of course, know well. Uh, there was the, there was a development of this op- this moment in post 1860 i say specifically in the book where this idea of of what it means to be equal citizens what it means to be civilized uh what it means to be anti-sectarian develops in in a in a in a noticeable way and takes on different strands and what my point was by that the conservative aspect is that far from being a, a radical you know Project. Um, it was radical in some ways, insofar as equality, I think, is, is often a radical project and uh, certainly a, a radical idea to those who were invested in the older ways. But I think it's, it's also important to understand just how conservative certain aspects of the Nahda were and just how ultimately the consensus that emerges around equal citizenship on the one hand and a religiously informed or sectarian personal status on the other. That sort of binary, that dualism, you know, it, it is, is what I find so fascinating um, about this conservative, not, not, in a, not necessarily in a good way, because it, it's got it's all sorts of inequalities built into it. Um, you know, the Nahda was deeply gendered, it was deeply elitist, but at the same time, it was also fundamentally different from what came before, but it wasn't a unified total project. I don't know if that, if that makes it clear. That's what I'm trying to, to get at. And to go back to your point about Ottoman tolerance, if I may, I mean, the reason I was pushing back against, I mean, I'm pushing it back against two things. One, this defeatist attitude of today that I feel that the despair of today, where people say, oh, man, we're terrible, we're backwards, we're this, we haven't learned, especially you see this in, in, in not necessarily among historians of the Middle East, as much as among, I would say, people who think about the history of the Middle East, uh, journalists, and so on, and people who care deeply about the region, who, who are, as I said, in, in a sense of despair today. These people, I'm trying to push back and say, look, understand that the transition from inequality to equality, the transition from subject to citizenship, the transition from non-discrimination to, to, to something greater, something more positive, actual, uh, actual compatriotship, uh, in all its meanings and all its senses, it was fraught in every part of the world, including, of course, the US and including Europe. And this is something that I really insist on in the beginning of the book, if you would have noticed, and then and the, and the epilogue as well, that I'm tired of works that always judge the Middle East as somehow especially sectarian or especially backwards. And I'm trying to say, no, to understand this region in all its complexity, without defensiveness, you have to appreciate the fact that this was just one site of what I consider to be a global uh, um, revolution on the one hand and problem on the other.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: Right. I was particularly struck, for example, by your, your comparison uh, or your reference to emancipation in, in the United States in the 19th century, right? So um, just as uh, you're moving from a, a position of inequality to something that Better resembles unity, diversity, coexistence, but also equality. Um, uh, in the Ottoman Empire, you know these are these are issues, as you said, that are are global. Um, and it struck me as an important reminder that sometimes I think we lose sight of. Um, so, what's that? Well, not, not just reminder, but not just a reminder.
2: It's also not just a reminder. It's also I think it's an essential. That keeping that global context in mind uh, and keeping that comparative framework in mind, even if one is not doing an actual comparative history, just as a juxtaposition, it's really important to push back against what I really do consider to be either insidious Orientalist representations of the Middle East as somehow peculiar and backward, or the sense of defeatism of people who think, oh, this is terrible, or people who think that, who who just think of the Middle East, or want to think of the Middle East entirely you know, as its own sort of um, uh, place without actually understanding that that in fact the the traumas and the transitions in the Middle East, you know, have parallels in other parts of the world. And once you understand that, you can then better delve into those traumas without defensiveness. Once you realize that the U.S. is not, I mean, I really do believe, we can see this today, of course, with Trump uh, or anyone who's followed U.S. politics for, 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 for as long as the U.S. has been around. We will we'll of course understand this that inequality and discrimination and racism and brutality are are every bit as much a part of the history of the United states as are the more positive elements and 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 it's not to and just like historians will, will don't grossly generalize about the u s so too i think it's incumbent upon us to to approach the middle east with more humility i think the history of the middle east that is the history of the arab world in particular
1: so um then After the the Ottoman context, we move to um, what what some scholars classify as a a pretty disruptive uh, moment, uh, a a break, if you will, in the history of the modern Middle East, and that is the emergence of the British and French uh, mandate systems. And there's a, a bit of a debate going on as you well know, and some of our listeners uh, may be aware, within the scholarly community about the extent to which this is a decisive break, or should we instead look for uh, continuities with the Ottoman Empire? So I'm curious, when it comes to the ecumenical frame, um, you, you don't emphasize so much uh, Britain and, and France. Um, you you talk about them, of course, somewhat, but I mean, there are, there are a number of works that, really, really emphasize uh, Britain and France as sort of being particularly uh, sectarianizing. Um, so I'm, I'm curious uh, how, how Britain and France uh, play into to this ecumenical frame. Um, or I should say, colonialism.
2: Well, they, they, that's a great question. And of course, well, colonialism, I mean, colonial, well, when you talk about colonialism, in in terms of post world war 1 the end of the ottoman empire we are talking essentially about britain and france um there i mean um and so and britain even more so than france but france also of course in syria and lebanon play play uh plays a massive role and uh, and of course i i i acknowledge this and i i say this in fact in the book i mean yes of course the the these are you know they play a huge role they go from being you know players in the ottoman scene to being the shapers of course of the political architecture of the post ottoman world i mean every scholar knows that and as you said there are there are there are really fantastic works by scholars working on either british or french colonialism the last colonialism one one should, one should emphasize this is like the, 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 the fir, or at least the first colonialism in the name of self determination um, that 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 shapes shapes the um, shapes the, the the formation of the modern political arab world in the middle east and so i'm completely obviously totally aware uh, of that and i'm not in any way trying to downplay the the sectarianizing impulses of the french for example in lebanon and in syria but my point was was to say that we we know that already. And the question is not to deny that, but in fact to point out in terms of the story of of the ecumenical frame and its anti-sectarian fundament, which of course began in the in the Ottoman period, is how that continues um in in the face of British and French colonial or in the context of British and French colonialism. Because remember that, that the very notion of being Arab, in, an Arab nationalist, an Egyptian nationalist, an Iraqi nationalist, a Syrian nationalist, in all these contexts, it always presupposes, of course, in this period, opposition to, at one level, um, a British or French, depending on which, which context we're talking about, a notion that without Britain and France and without their tutelage, their colonial tutelage, this part of the world would fragment into warring sectarian ethnic religious tribal uh you know fragments and that the british and the french pretend to be the ones that keep things together and so a lot of the mobilization in fact the anti-sectarian mobilization was mobilized precisely against british or french colonial claims and their their sort of racist discourse um against against uh arabs uh, in general so and that's why in fact the figure of Satar Hussein in one of the chapters is, is so important but my, my point was to say the story predates the the these um uh, the, the the direct last colonialism or the first colonialism in the name of self-determination it predates that story and it continues under in, in the context of that colonialism and it postdates it it continues after the end of the formal colonial era. So I didn't want to emphasize what people I think already know incredibly well, that the British and the French played an extraordinarily negative role um, in the Middle East. And in fact, in my discussion of Zionism and Palestine, as well as Iraq, I don't, and, and Lebanon for that matter, I don't actually, since those are the cases I deal with in the post-Ottoman period, I don't actually, uh, the, the colonial context is, is a given. Of course, it's there, it's essential. Um, but I don't want to spend all my time talking about what Imperial Administrator A or B said or did because it's been done. And I'm much more interested in talking about the anti-sectarian tradition that developed in the Ottoman period. So this is actually on one course. of
1: the most fascinating parts for me in your book, because then and you mentioned one of the figures that you explore more fully, Sattar al-Husri. Um, but the other is uh, Michel Sheha, right, of Lebanon, Um two extraordinarily different figures with uh, very different visions of how to grapple with the question of diversity in newly drawn nation states uh, in the Middle East during the mandate period. Um, And unless I'm mistaken, it seems that you're arguing that both of them draw on the ecumenical frame, but they do so in in very different ways. Um, I'm wondering if, if you could just for our listeners, explain briefly who uh, Shiha and al hasri were, and then uh, kind of talk about their competing visions of of uh, political equality or or, uh, or at least pluralism, I guess uh, one might say.
2: Yeah, I think it's more pluralism than political equality, especially in the case, especially in the case of Shiha. Um, but I, I think I think well, both obviously, as you as you as you mentioned, these are two figures that I focus on because they played. Shiha in the case of the new state of Lebanon, uh, Husari, in the case of the new state of Iraq, both uh, created after World War One and after the collapse of the Ottoman Empire and after the end of this common Ottoman sovereignty or this unified uh, uh, sovereign state, um, the Shiha, of course, uh, you know, in, in the literature on Lebanon is well known in, insofar as he's often identified as the the the, the man who. Who played a leading role in uh, the de- creating, thinking, devising the, the sectarian architecture of the modern Lebanese state, and someone, in other words, who we think of as committed to this idea that the only way and the most realistic way—this is, of course, his—I don't, I don't accept this, but he said this or he believed this—the most, uh, the, the the only way to sort of guarantee. The, the, the religious diversity of the Orient and of Lebanon, he was fixated on Lebanon, of course, um, was to create a sectarian uh, political system that guaranteed different communities a voice, a formal voice in, in, this, in this country, in this new country. Uh, so in other words, for him, sectarianism was, or the, a sectarian political culture was a way to organize uh, religious difference and to formalize religious difference in a way that gave, in theory, at least, each quote unquote major community a place around the table. So nobody felt excluded. At least this was the idea. And of course what as I point out in the book, what he excludes or what he what he conveniently forgets and papers over is the fact that that this system was created it, of course in the context of French colonialism. It was uh, so, you know, and, and that the creation of Lebanon itself was, you know, again, part and parcel of a colonial history and violence against Syria, violence in, 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 the, in the Mashriq, colonial violence, all of which Shia tends to paper over. And of course, the entire Lebanese system was created and f- fundamentally weighted in favor of the Maronite uh, political elite in the country. So, but, but, but if we just step back a bit. You see the way he what what he's telling us is he's, he's making this argument that the way to organize diversity realistically is not to pretend that everyone is secular or everyone is equally you know national in a, in a kind of uh, neutral way but in fact to emphasize religious difference um, and so it's one way of approaching this question of of sectarian difference in the Middle East to to take the social reality of religious of multiple religious communities and then to transform it into a political system. And so his approach is to sectarianize. But of course, he claimed at least that this was the more realistic way of dealing with difference. And his idea in theory, and according to the Lebanese constitution, as I point out, the idea is that we're meant at some stage in the future to transcend sectarian difference by recognizing sectarian difference initially. That's the myth or the idea. And I point this out and and you know scholars debate of course whether he was sincere whether this was just a uh, a maneuver and so on but my point is that is that he's powerfully cognizant of the fact of 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 uh religious diversity in the region and its ecumenical heritage but he chooses in the context of aligning himself with french colonialism to create one way to to present us with one path a path of course that we we see increasingly in evidence in places like Iraq and Syria um, that that says to the, the realistic way of dealing with diversity is to recognize this diversity politically and to entrench it in the system. But again, his idea was he would claim that he did that as a mechanism to reach a non-sectarian future. That's his that's his argument. Hussari, of course, in Iraq is a completely different um, kind of, uh, uh, had a different project insofar as it, he was, um, he came out of an Ottoman educational milieu. He was a really well-known Ottoman uh, pedagogue, uh, a modernizer, and he ends up working on a much reduced political canvas of Iraq. And so after the Ottoman, from the Ottoman scale, he ends up in the Iraqi uh, context, working with King Faisal, who of course was put there by the British. But Hussari had really believed in in a secular nationalist Arabist project. So his way of unifying. Uh, difference was by sort of you know doing as much as it could to sort of supersede that difference, to transcend it immediately by emphasizing the common arabism. but of course it had its own biases and its own blind spots as I point out in the book. but my point is that Hussari at least was working against a colonial project a- at a certain way and insofar as it that, that ultimately his, his, his very clear goal was to create uh, a secular Um, Arab nation. Now, of course, there are people who are left out of that, the Kurds and others who are, you know, he doesn't, he just doesn't have the time of day for, Um, you know, as I said, he has all these blind spots and his biases. Um, But his argument was that the way to transcend religious difference was not to emphasize religious difference or sectarian difference, because that would only entrench this problem and make it essentially, you know, impossible to deal with, as opposed to Shia, who entrenched religious difference Uh, uh, A sectarian difference in the name of transcending it.
1: So one of the things that I noticed that both figures have in common, and of course, uh, you know, people who study the Middle East uh, know this, is that uh, both of them still allow for uh, personal status laws, Um, even uh, even in Iraq. You know, it's it's not following the Shia model specifically, but. Uh, but there's still a lot of deference to religious communities. I'm wondering um, if you had thoughts on on why that is so persistent, not just of course in in the mandate period but but even today, in all of the various iterations uh, of the ecumenical frame that have been uh, personal status seems to be really stubborn, a gendered personal status in particular. Well, I think personal status is always gendered,
2: no matter if it's secular or or or, or allegedly religiously informed. I think it's always gendered, um, and I think the point is, I think it's it's a it's a good question. But just before I get to that question, if I could just go back to the Shia Husseini, you know, juxtaposition again. The why I juxtapose those two figures is in part because also in the literature of the modern Middle East, as you know, when one ends up studying the Mandate of Iraq or Iraqi history, you end up looking primarily at Iraqi figures or the figures in Iraq, such as Hussari, and you tend not to, not, to, not to be in any conversation with, with parallel figures in other parts of the region. And so my point was, and, then, and the, precisely the same for Lebanon, there's like so these, these nationalist sort of um, silos or these historiographies, even when one is criticizing the nationalist orthodoxies, we tend to look at and to engage with for understandable reasons, These figures that are in Lebanon or in Iraq or in Syria, and we tend not, or in Egypt especially, and we tend not to, you know, take very seriously or even examine or even pretend to examine these other figures. If anything, the scholarship tends to be we take Western theory seriously and then we tend to apply it in the Middle East rather than engage with how people in the Middle East itself, in various parts of the Arab world, in various mandates um, grappled with very similar issues, but in extraordinarily different ways. So I really want to emphasize that, that point, um, as to your question, remind me, I'm sorry.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Just (laughs) the persistence. No, no worries. Um, well, and I, I should add, I, I also find these two characters very fascinating because, um, you know, even as they're very influential in their respective uh, post-war nation states, uh, both of them have you know really sort of transnational biographies, if you will. I mean, she has family has correct me if I'm wrong, but origins in Iraq, right? And and Husri, of course, was sort of a, a trans-imperial Ottoman figure. Um, so there is a certain irony, I think, that they they can so well. Become the epitome of international models.
2: Correct, and they're both being they both being. I mean, again, I, I know they're both being characterized and sort of caricatured, especially Husseini. More recently, Husseini has being caricatured in an absurd way as as just a sectarian Sunni. This is how he's often represented today in the aftermath of the U.S. invasion of Iraq, as just as a quote Sunni figure, and all the complexity of what Hussari stood for, all the, the, the pedagogy, all that is sort of treated uh, for, by most scholars, I mean, there are exceptions, uh, um, as, as somehow a Sunni figure. And it's, it's an absurd, uh, honestly, re, uh, characterization of, of Hussari. And, and the same, uh, to, a, to a lesser extent, with, with Shiha, he's often described simply as a right-wing, uh, um, you know, sectarian fanatic. And of course, you could say that, but then you don't actually deal with the fact that, or, or as a counter-revolutionary, or as an anti-revolutionary, but the truth of the matter is that it's it's a much more complicated period, and uh, and I don't again and that part of what I was trying to do in this book is is to f- get people to engage with aspects and histories that they're not necessarily comfortable doing, and actually exposing myself in the in the process. I mean, here I am, you know, moving from the 19th century into the 20th century, so from Ottoman to post-Ottoman, uh, Palestine, uh, Lebanon, Lebanon, Iraq. Um, the Balkans, the Arab world, and so on and so forth. And so, I'm just trying to to, to push us as much as possible. And I, as I said, I include myself in this, into uh, to think about the, the the conventional wisdoms with which we've uh, we, we've become accustomed to.
1: Excellent. Um, so I I do, if if you're willing, I would like to return to the question of uh, just personal status laws and the persistence. Um, if if you have any yeah, thoughts sure. on. Sure. On why they persist, uh, yeah, I in do. the
2: ecumenical yeah. frame. Well, I mean, part of part of the argument that I make in the book, uh, and this—I remember this is this is just uh, as a pro, as a proposition in a sense, uh, hypothesis—is that I, I'm trying to to say this is my understanding of how the ecumenical frame develops, and and it, it does, although I find it at one level to be extraordinary, extraordinarily important insofar as dealing with questions of equality. And questions of citizenship, uh, and this, and this, this momentous transition from subjecthood to citizenship, and from formal uh, ideological discrimination against non-Muslims to a, a period in which uh, non-Muslims played a, a major role in the elaboration, especially of equal citizenship, uh, but also, of course, uh, Muslim Ottoman and Arab figures played a massive role as well. And the idea is is to um, the idea was to say, but ultimately, the the, the consensus, um, uh, the overlapping consensus, you know, citing um, uh, the overlapping consensus that that develops in in the region is is one where there is this bifurcation or this dualism, both of which are constructed at more or less the same time between secular citizenship on the one hand and what we would call sectarian personal status laws or 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 um religiously informed personal status laws on the other and they develop simultaneously and but the point um, i try to make is because i think it's fundamentally a conservative it's a conservative uh uh, move It, it allows for people who are both who are religious and pietistic and uh and and conservative in those as opposed to liberation theologians in other words people who are who have more conservative interpretations and, and positions, whether they're religious or secular, to be at ease with the idea of secular citizenship. This is one way that allows for buy-in to the system. A, on the one hand, B, there was no consensus on secular uh, uniform civil uh, status, uniform civil code. There is no, in terms of family law, there is no consensus, but there was a consensus on equal citizenship. That's what I find remarkable. So that people have, by the mid-20th century, very little problem in the masjid with the idea of equality between Muslim and non-Muslim, and Muslim and Christian in particular. Um, but there, there is tremendous resistance to the idea of a uniform civil code. And again, it's worth exploring as to why that is, but it's also worth pointing out, as again scholars who've worked on this uh on, on personal status in in Egypt or in Lebanon, these are always contested, even in Iraq, these are always contested, negotiated codes. And so even though we call them sectarian personal status codes or religiously informed personal status codes, there's no, there's no, um, there's no agreement. There's always pushback, especially among women activists who fight for equal rights or for better rights under the rubric of a more equitable interpretation of what Islamic or Christian uh, or Druze or whatever it is, uh, personal status may be. So my point is that it's it's still an ongoing, it's still a deeply contested, but there is absolutely, no, as far as I can tell, no consensus anywhere in the region. It's one of the the riddles for me as to why there's no, um, there's no call. It's not a riddle, as I say. I think it's because of the, the fundamentally conservative nature of the ecumenical frame and its foundation. There's no... Um, there's no genuine mobilization. I mean, there are every now and then there, there's a push for it, but it gets shut down very quickly uh, for secular personal status.
1: Right, and well, and these, as you well know, and as some of our listeners who, who may uh, follow the news in the region know, that issues of personal status, and you know, in Lebanon, for example, questions of civil marriage, right, continue to to, to come up and and be debated. Um, yeah. All the time, yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I am kind of curious then, because uh, both Shihan al- al-Hassiri are, are so different, and um, they're both different in some ways than the thawis. And and you include in the book references to uh, other very diverse figures who are all sort of part of this ecumenical frame. The the co-founders of the Baath Party. I, um, I think you mentioned Hassan al-Banna. Um, Shikib Arslan, King Faisal, the SSNP, the Communist Party. There's so many people. Um, what uh, what w- what is included then in the ecumenical frame, and and what, if anything, exists outside of it?
2: Well, I mean, as I, as I say in, in the book, of course, I don't I don't spend uh, uh, as much time on on the Muslim Brotherhood or on the SSNP or the communist parties or the bath party for that matter, all these, these parties that you just mentioned, I, I allude to these, these uh, parties and organizations, um, in part because part of what I'm trying to say is here's, here's my hope. My fervent hope is that, that we create a new agenda for research, which focuses on the anti-sectarian tradition on this ecumenical frame and all its, all its diversity. And that's really what I'm, I'm hoping for. So hopefully other scholars will come along and, and, and correct uh, uh push back or whatever you know uh, um, my work or this this idea of, of the ecumenical frame, uh, but my point is that these are all fun, what's fascinating is that they all you know are fundamentally accept the 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 ecumenical frame insofar as almost all these these, these movements accept the idea of of uh, of a vibrant multi religious uh um, landscape in which they they live to a greater or lesser extent with contradictions with caveats with so on but there's there's you know in overwhelmingly uh, in syria in palestine in lebanon in egypt there in iraq there's this idea that that these are in fact um vibrant multi-religious societies and of course the massive debates are about how to politicize this you know whether to do it in a more secular or a more sectarian way a more islamic and more secular way and so on and so forth but they all i think fundamentally adhere to more or less conservative interpretations of the ecumenical frame uh, as to who comes on the outside i mean the example i gave in the book um, in terms of the palestine case is of course a colonial zionism and that's because it actually does come from the outside it comes from europe and the zionist movement in, in it's uh, that i focus on in, in the book of course these are people who are themselves, by their own admission, coming from Europe and are, are not interested ultimately in, in sort of adhering to uh, an Ottoman landscape or an Ottoman heritage or the ecumenical frame, but in fact in creating an exclusive Jewish state in Palestine. And so, and, and so that's why I track that, that, that uh, fascinating, I mean, in a, in a, in a, in a tragic way, Development that the the the, uh, the uh, of what happens to the ecumenical frame. I mean, in in terms of how it how it actually comes under massive pressure in Pal, and ultimately I think is collapses in Pal or destroyed in Palestine uh, with the Nakba of 1948, and then of course with what happens to Arab Jewish communities elsewhere in the Mashrek.
1: So right. Um so you, you mostly stop your narrative then in in 1948. Although you have an, an epilogue where you talk a bit about uh, the the rise of uh, nominally secular authoritarianisms in the Middle East, and uh, then in the late 70s, the what some scholars have called the the Islamist turn, right? Uh, somewhat problematically. Um, but I'm curious if if you have thoughts on on the state of the ecumenical frame uh, either today or, or the second half of the the 20th century. Um, are you optimistic? Well, I think
2: <laughs> um, you know, look as I say at the end. You know, it, it's hard to be. It's of course, it's hard to be optimistic about the state of the world today. Um, it's, it is really honestly i mean oh I, I wouldn't claim to be optimistic anymore but what i am what i am genuinely am in terms of looking at this history is in, uh, full of um um uh, respect and as i said humility for all the figures past and present i mean that's, that's part of what i'm trying to say is that the ecumenical frame despite palestine despite the nakba despite the destruction of arab palestine despite the, 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 the massive uh, you know, imperial reach. And this is one of the points that I find in the scholarship astonishing. is just how the obviousness of colonialism in the Middle East in terms of post-World War I, the, the, as I said, the last major colonialism that I'm aware of, maybe there are other places, but um, in the world, and as I said, the first colonialism in the name of self-determination, um, this kind of massive shock that takes place and that we still live with, despite all that, there persists in them in the middle east in the arab world in the Mashriq, what, what what's amazing is to see the persistence of people who keep fighting for precisely the values that i identify with in other words humanism you know equality you know and, and so on and and so that that's what i find in liberation and, th- and that's what i find um, um, Profoundly moving, and so it's, for me, so sort of rather than end on a down note, yes, it's. I mean, I, you don't need me to tell you that the situation in the Middle East is terrible, but on the other hand, I say look around the world and 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 see that it's the same fight that gets that manifests in different ways, in different contexts, and so the allies are everywhere, and the enemies, of course, are are are, are all over the place as well, and so my my point ultimately is to say, look at all the amazing uh, uh, moments of. Not just of solidarity, but also of, of um, insistence upon an ecumenical culture that persists in virtually every society in the Mashrek, despite the extraordinary violence, despite the the, extra- the catastrophic violence that's taken place in places like Iraq, in places like Syria. And and scholars need to be attentive to that. Otherwise, we end up in these extraordinarily seductive and reductive narratives of, you know, Sunni and, and 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 X and Y. And we've, you know, and we've done a, a huge disservice to the history, to the living history of this region.
1: Well, thank you so much. Um, we like to close these interviews by um, asking uh, where you're going next right um what what research threads are you pulling on i i know uh you know this book is just coming out so you're you're probably taking a, a slightly well-deserved break but what sorts of questions are you interested in pursuing in the future
2: um i'm not really you know it's it's true i just finished the book right now so i'm kind <laughs> of uh, <laughs> i'm still thinking but i think something along the lines of um the king crane commission you know um but I'm not entirely sure, to be absolutely honest with you. I'm, I'm not really sure. I just I'm hoping though, that people take up this call to study the anti-sectarian uh, history, the tradition and all its varieties and all its contradictions, as a, a point of departure rather than always focusing on sectarianism. And that's really my, my, my hope. Uh, and I, I hope that, um, that we'll see many more works that refine uh, the arguments that I put forward in this book.
1: Excellent. Well, thank you so much uh, for being with us. We really appreciate it.
2: No problem at all. Thank you for having me.